friends. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you had a good holiday season. I definitely had a good one myself. You know, one of the things you learn when you get hung up on during a podcast by a New York Times bestselling author because he thinks you shouldn't be doing podcasts on a break is that you learn to appreciate the breaks that you have. And it has been really rejuvenating. Uh, great time with my family. Uh, you know, we had some illnesses and some sickness and all that stuff. But uh, nevertheless, it was still a great time. And I hope you had a good holiday as well. Now, before we get to the podcast today, let me tell you about where I'm going to be January 23rd through 25th. I'm going to be in Houston, Texas at the Pastors, Priests, and Guides Retreat. I'm so excited to hear from Ronald Rollheiser, Aaron and Shauna Nequist, Sean Palmer, uh, some friends of the show right there, and a few others. But if you've got time and you got the ability, join me for this retreat. Um, I, I can't wait to hear... Ronald Rollheiser, friend of the show, uh, come back on and talk about the, he's not coming back on the podcast, he's coming to the retreat and talking about the Paschal Mystery, which is the beautiful ability that we have to find ourselves within the cycle of life, death, and resurrection. We'll allow God to lead us into the next steps of wholeness, mission, and Christ-likeness. So join me at the Ecclesia Westside Campus, January 23rd to 25th. Check it out online. Now, our guest for today is Mike Donahue. Some of you remember him from the wildly successful Christian band called 10th Avenue North. Uh, he's written a couple books, Finding God's Life for My Will, and his new book, which comes out uh, right around now, which is entitled Grace in the Gray. Now, this is a fun conversation because I had actually never met Mike before, but when I was in Nashville, uh, I guess it was this summer. I stayed at his house while he was out of town. I had a friend, uh, Jason Miller, who was staying there while Jay was on sabbatical. And so it's kind of funny. Been at this guy's house, slept in his house, but uh, never actually met the guy before. And so we talk about that, among other things, on this great conversation that I hope you enjoy with Mike Donahue. All right, friends, welcome so back get into to it. the show. It is my honor to be joined today from East Nashville by Mike Donahue. How are you, man? Man, I'm fantastic. Thanks for asking. Let's go ahead and get some weird thing on the table, front and center. You've been on this podcast before when Jay Miller, Jason Miller, was guest hosting. And here's something that makes it even weirder than that. Like, I never met you, but you've been on my podcast. I've actually stayed in your house. And we've never (laughs) met before. I've, I've literally slept in the very house you're in right now. And we've never met before. I'm trying to think of which is stranger. Hmm. I honestly think more people could probably say someone they haven't met has slept in their house than someone they haven't met has been on their own podcast. I mean, that's very generous of you to say. I'm going to go with it's creepier for me to have slept in your house and you we've never met before. Well, uh, we, we have a lot of guests come through our house. Hospitality is a is a big ethos in our family. So, OK, well. I've never had someone else guest host an episode on my podcast. So I guess in terms of frequency, it would be the the podcast. But uh, from a more human perspective, I feel like being in your house without meeting you is weirder. But nevertheless, like, we're how'd here. You li- how'd, you, how'd you like my house? Was it's it wonderful. Cozy? Like, it's it's very creepy that, like, I've been in that room you're, that you're in right now. I'm like, I've, I've been in that room before. Um, like, there's a piano and you've got, like, some, like records on the wall like in front of you or something so it's it's just a little bit unnerving to me but i wanted to put that out there and just kind of feel like we could work through that up front i love this i love everything that's happening right it's yeah. a very inception sort of a moment exactly and when your dog barked i was like yeah i know the dog and your sister walked in like i've been in your house and your sister's daughter walked in which i was See? just like there's some weird 40 year old dude in your uncle's house and it's me so i mean all this stuff happened and i feel like that just makes what i believe to be a budding friendship all the more you know uh, special budding more like explosive <laughs> pick your pick your word yeah i feel like we've we're, we're past that like it's already happened here we are we're here now and we're doing the podcast and i, I need to tell you something else your song uh, i believe t- i'm ter- terrible titles on songs but it's uh glory i couldn't see yeah. Like, is that right? Yeah. Dude, you got it. that song is, I, I have three daughters. You have four daughters last time I checked. Yes. Um, and when I say checked, it's not like I'm looking in your window. It's just counting, but. No, apparently you are. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, gotta, 
You're like, I love that one family photo that you have yeah, over exactly. the bed. That's that's the best. Yeah. Um, you, you know what's sad is like I really do. In your living room, you have a thing of like your four daughters on the wall, and I was like, I really do like that piece of art. Like that's really nice. Anyway, um, before I get a restraining order, let's go back to the yes. song. Glory yes. I can see. That song has been um, so meaningful to me. It popped up in my Spotify like release radar. And so yeah. okay. it, it just showed up and I started listening to it. And then Jay sent it to me and I was like, oh, I, I love this song already. And then we made the connection. And uh, I just, I feel like I just need to say thank you, man. Like, so what's the story for that song for you? Because I can tell the story for me. It's like, I'm a dad. I feel like I miss things in front of me. I feel like I miss the beauty of my family. What is it for you that led you to write that song? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the pandemic sort of uh, magnified I think for a lot of people, it kind of gave them a glimpse into parts of their life they were blind to. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, a couple months into the pandemic and our kids had been sent home from school, my tour had been canceled. They're like, here, you homeschool your children. And <laughs> apparently we're not good teachers because our daughters are getting dumber every day. <laughs> and uh, and I just, for the first couple months, raged against being locked up you know i mean yeah. i think a lot of people can commiserate with that and uh and then there was just kind of a shift where i i think i was reading the screw tape letters and there's this in letter 15 you know the uncle demon tells the nephew demon try to get your human to obsess about the past or the future mm-hmm. but don't ever let your human think about the present because mm-hmm. the present is the only point where time touches eternity Hmm. And that really woke me up that here I was, I'd spent so much time on the road and missed so much already. And then when I'm given the gift to be home, I refuse the very thing that I'd been missing out on. I refuse to just be where I was. And uh, that's what the song's about. Wow. Okay, so you, you write the song, I assume, what, two years ago, a year ago? When was the writing yeah, process? Yeah, when did I write that? I guess it would have been, man, I think it was probably 2020. Okay. You know, it's funny. I just saw, I co-wrote that song with a guy named Chris C- Cleveland. His artist's name is Stars Go Dim. And he just posted about, uh, he wrote that song with me and he said he felt worthless in the room, like he wasn't contributing anything. Because hmm. um, I was just bouncing ideas off of him. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting how, Co-writing, I, I told him, I go, there's no such thing as being worthless in a co-write because that unique mixture of people bring unique things yeah. out of each other, even if you don't feel like you're the one contributing. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so even so- like, we're, we're going to talk right now, and you could even ask me the same questions that someone else would ask me, and the conversation's going to be different. You know? Yeah. First of all, that's offensive. I'll, I will not ask you the same questions. I'll do better. Uh, it'll be it'll be my own. Um, but two, you're right. Like there's something about like I, I've heard. Um, oh, this was Rob Bell who said this. But there, there's nothing new under the sun. But we've never heard you say that. Like we, we could talk about the idea of being present to my kids and being present to my daughter and being you know off my phone instead of being distracted with my wife. But I've never heard you say that. And so there's something unique about your humanity, but also when you have two people mixing their humanity together, like that is an interesting concoction that's never probably been mixed together before. So yeah, I, I really appreciate like the heart behind that. Um, but two years after you write that song, three years after you write that song, whatever it was, how do you like, do you, like, for me, like if I've written something a couple of years ago, like it's hard for me to remember. Like I've, I've written something in a book. I'm like, yeah, I don't remember what I wrote a couple of years ago. I'm always like forward thinking I'm an Enneagram seven. So I kind of live in the future, not in the past. D- How do you relate to something like that? That's a couple of years old, but it's a very personal thing for you specifically, like as it relates to how you interact with your kids. Do you still yeah. think about it or is it? I think it, I can relate to you on the book thing. So things I've written in books, I definitely have forgotten about. And mm-hmm. someone goes, remember when you wrote this? I go, oh, man, no. wow, I disagree with that. Or, wow, that was actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but with songs, you take so much time curating each sentence and saying it exactly right. That, And then you perform it over and over. So, yeah. you know, I, I just was performing that song every night on the tour. So... Um, you're always, I say writing songs, you better make sure you write songs that are always true. Uh-huh. Because otherwise you're going to get sick of singing it. 
And hmm. I feel like sometimes each night I'm reconvicted by my own songs having to sing them. Hmm. They better be true because, yeah. But you probably it's kind of like it's kind of like a song is sort of like the difference between a promise and a vow, right? So a mm-hmm. promise, if once you break it, it's over. But a vow, even if you break it, the vow stands and holds you accountable. That's so good. If that makes sense, yeah. No, so that's the right. song, the song is like a vow of going, "Hey, you said this, and this is going to remain to be true. Will mm-hmm. you?" live up to this thing that you've written. Yeah, so it's kind of aspirational. Like, I, I'm trying to live into this. It's both confessional and mis- and vision statement, yeah. yeah. Huh. Do you have a, what's the, the song that you continue to perform uh, at shows that has been in your catalog the longest period of time? Like, do you have a song that you've been playing for 15 years or 10 years or 5 years? Yeah, I mean, probably a song called By Your Side that I wrote in 2006 or seven, uh-huh. probably 2007, and, you know, it was probably the most famous 10th Avenue yeah. North song, and so even now, and I do feel really lucky to still 100% believe the words of that song, so it never mm. feels like, oh, I've got to sing this song again. I go, I'm, I'm so honored to get... To sing this song every night. Hmm. Okay, here's a terrible comparison here. I went to uh, John Mayer's show when he was in Austin uh, a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and he uh, was referencing a song he wrote probably when he was maybe 20. Uh, the song is entitled Your Body's a Wonderland, which probably is a different thematic um, subject matter than what you probably write about often. And Very Song of Solomon. Yeah, Very Song of Solomon. Um, but he, he <laughs> talked about like he had a season where he hated that song, and then, like, yeah. as he's probably 20 years removed from it, now he's having, like, this renewed, like, appreciation for it, that it's, like, it, it means something different. It reflects who he was 20 years ago, and there's almost like a, you know, he, he can say it better than me, but, like, he, he appreciates who that kid was who wrote that song. Yeah, that's good. I also think it's quite a unique privilege to have a song become so popular that you yourself get sick of it. Yeah. Uh, like, because if I get sick of a song that I wrote, most of the time it's just just means I'm not playing it for myself anymore. <laughs> uh, I, I would yeah. love to have the opportunity for lots of people to want to hear a song so much that I would get sick of it. Yeah, that that probably is a pretty good place to be at. Um, but I like the way you said that. Like, you're not playing it for yourself anymore. You're playing for other people. Like, it seems like that's that's a way that an what artist serves. Yeah. yeah. I, the, the, the biggest mistake I, I find young artists making is they think that they're on the stage to be served. And, my, you know, I have the unique experience. My sister's also in a band full-time, and we talk all the time about how we believe we're in the service industry. Hmm. Like, these people loved, the like, a chef, the thing that I made, and now they're coming to experience it live. And it's like, what a gift I have to serve them this meal of yeah. songs. I'm a waiter at that point. Huh. I like that attitude. Like, I never understood artists who go, oh, I don't want to sing that hit song that you all came to hear. Yeah. Give, the, give them what they bought a ticket for. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I don't understand that at all. Yeah. Uh, I've been able to talk to uh, Zach Lynn, who's the drummer for a band called Jimmy Eat World, uh, a few times. Yeah. And, he, you know, he talks about performing The Middle, which was their hit from... I don't know, 99? And he still what gets to play it. It's, it's a great a, song. I would a, love to be sick of that song. I know. I, I mean, I, I love the song. It's such a good song. But he has the same sort of attitude of, man, it's, it's amazing. They've been along for the ride and our music changes and we're, we're different people. But, you know, they're still playing that song and he still has like the sense of gratitude, which is weird because uh, if every time I go to a Jimmy show, I'm like, I still want to hear the song. Like, I still want to hear it. So... Yeah, you would be so disappointed if they didn't play that song. For yeah. sure. For sure. Now, uh, years from now, people are going to be talking to you, Mike, and say, hey, tell us more about Grace in the Gray, because they're going to be wanting to hear more about this for decades. And so we're going to go ahead and talk about it now, the new book, because yeah. we know for decades, people are going to be like, hey, can you retell us that story about the time Brenny Manning called you out and said you're a terrible person? And we want to hear it again, say it over and over again. So let's jump into it, okay? Yeah, with joy. With <laughs> men- 
Okay, one of the things that you say uh, early in the book is that you come from a family that has a, uh, let's just say, a, a high level of comfort with intense dialogue over ideas. And yeah. my, my family is very akin to that. Um, my mom, rest her soul, uh, was an Enneagram 8. My brother's an Enneagram 8. My dad's a college professor. And then I'm a preacher. So, like, we're, we're all, like comfortable for doing that. My, my brother, when he first got married, uh, we had a road trip to Ohio for a family funeral and his poor wife was just like, why do you guys hate? Like, why, why are you guys yeah. doing so much of this? And you had a similar experience, uh, with yeah. your wife where you get together and with tears in her eyes, she's wondering in real time, like, what is this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. She goes, why are you guys so intense about everything? Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, there's a certain mixture of personhood of my mom and dad and, you know, what they endured and cultivated and brought into our family. And um, but, yeah, we've always loved a good row. And it's it's not usually about anything important. You know, Mm -hmm. it's usually about how you make your coffee or something like that. Yeah. Or what actor or whatever. Um, and I would say, gratefully, as time has gone by, I think we are getting better at um, maybe not letting unimportant things snowball into a level of importance uh, that they shouldn't be. Yeah. Which is really you know, what the book's about is about having the reasonable ability to step back and, you know, maybe this is a gray space and it's not really worth fighting over. Yeah. Which I don't think we always have the natural default to go, do we need to die on this hill like we do every other hill? It seems like our culture is, has perpetuated a notion that you have to be like the two talking heads we see on every show where it's like life or death, whatever the issue is, like these people are diametrically opposed and we've bought into that is how we do discourse with every issue. There, I was just talking to my friend Brant this morning and he reminded me of this thing that Dallas Willard said. And I don't know if you're a fan of Dallas Willard, but... He's got some great books. He was a teacher at USC mm-hmm. and also a preacher. And he would get invited into these debates on faith dialogue. And he would always say, I would love to come, but I need you to do me a favor. I need you to rename the event because I, I participate in conversation, but I don't participate in debates. So if you could just reframe it as, a mutual inquiry into the truth. Mm-hmm. I would love to be a part of that. And I just love the humility and the curiosity in that statement of mm-hmm. what if we approached these uh, disagreements as a mutual inquiry into the truth. I think mm-hmm. it just reframes the thing from yeah. a winning and a losing to a nuance and a understanding yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I have plenty of those uh, conversations maybe that are going on in real time in my life right now. And a debate or like a, you know, a, a legal courtroom, like who's right, who's wrong, that sort of interaction is vastly different from what you just described, a mutual inqu- inquiry to the truth. That's, that's a different situation. And it, I, it, for me, it stems from what Frederick Beekner said. Are you a Beekner fan? I like everyone uh, I, you've said so far. I love me some Freddie B. And <laughs> I read this thing where he said that God in the garden with Adam and Eve was like the first psychotherapist. Hmm. Because when Adam and Eve, you know, they sin, he doesn't approach them with interrogation the way we actually approach ourselves. Like, Going into the new year, you know, I'm just wondering, the people listening to this, when you break that resolution and you fall back into that habit, what does the voice in your head sound like? And Frederick Beekner points out, when God approaches Adam and Eve, he doesn't say, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. What, what were you thinking? You better explain yourself to me. He just says, hey, where are you? And who told you that? Yeah. And, and so even God approaches humanity with curiosity and kindness. And that's the way I believe we ought to begin our conversations. Yeah. 
I, I, the the book I think tells a story. I feel like it's like Jeff Goldblum who talks like there's some idea about like leaning in instead yes. of leaning in with curiosity instead of sitting back and like the posture most of us are in is like all right I'm going to tell you why you're wrong and even like you can't seem to like the posture of closed arms and hand like where you have this like deflection and distance but instead you lean in and all of a sudden it creates a different dial- dialogue why do you think leaning in changes things so much yeah i uh, i think you're referencing i think it was a hot ones interview i saw jeff goldblum yeah. do yeah, yeah. A, like a youtube thing where they eat increasingly hot hot wings yeah and jeff goldblum in his jeff goldblum way yeah. you know the interviewer goes you've always been so fascinating and interesting um and he's like oh no see uh i had a, a an acting teacher who he said uh, the, the key to acting is not to be fascinating and interesting it's to be uh, fascinated and interested and then you will be fascinating and interesting mm-hmm. and i think we live in a culture where there's so much impetus on me projecting myself a certain way no. that it's completely countercultural to go i'm actually more interested and fascinated then I'm worried about projecting how fascinating and interesting I am. That's good. You know, it's the old, like, do you seek to be understood or seek to understand? Yeah. And, and the people who are always the most interesting to talk with are the ones who are like, they're leaned in and they're full of curiosity and wonder. And then you go, now we can actually go somewhere together. Yeah. I think it was uh, Walt Whitman who gets quoted <laughs> by Ted Lasso where he says, uh, be curious, not judgmental. He's throwing the darts. Yeah. Yes, that's exa- that's the scene. Yeah, that's exactly it. What a great scene! Oh. But like the line is right. Like, be curious. Like, not only will you figure out that uh, what is it? Ted Lasso played darts his whole childhood and whatever, and so he's very good at this. And so you're going to end up losing <clears throat> this proposition because you're not curious enough. But <clears throat> yeah. excuse me, man, I'm losing my voice there. But like, I feel like I just need a hug. That's what I need. I'm but, just curious right now. You know, just you leaning know, I, in. Thank you, you for water? that. I, I lost my voice two Sundays ago preaching, and I feel like it's just like I'm being haunted right now. Or maybe I'm going through puberty, one of the two. Either way. <clears throat> Either way. I'm, I feel like we're good now. I, I just cleared it off. We're all better now. Okay. Thank you for being curious instead of judgmental of my throat issues there. Uh, one of the things that I, I need to confess, like I was a little bit judgmental, top of the book. I'm going, okay, uh, this guy's great artist, talented musician. What is he going to say? Uh, wh- what is he coming from? Like what position, what, what qualifications does he have to speak on this issue? And you jumped ahead of me. Like you eight mild me. Like you took my question and turned it into a strength. Like you spun it around where you, like your, I think it was the second chapter of the book you go, okay, some of you are going, what does this musician, what does this artist have to say about how to deal with this? And so maybe you jump in and talk about how uh, your perspective as a white male Protestant musician have to bring to this conversation about conflict. Yeah. The, the, the first key to understanding concept is to understand how limited you are in your understanding and perspective. Yeah. So if I, if I just assume I'm just this, you know, (laughs) I am the know-it-all, then I am, according to Proverbs, I'm not beginning with wisdom, which wisdom over and over in the book of Proverbs is like, a wise man loves to be told where he's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing in the book, I admit that, hey, I have a limited perspective. The one area that I think has helped me understand disagreement and how to disagree well is spending 20 years of my life songwriting, particularly mm-hmm. co-writing. Because if there's ever a soul-bearing, uh, pride-crushing um cooperation that has to take place it's when you get in a room and you bare your soul and you're like how do you like this piece of my soul and the other songwriter goes yeah no that's that's terrible oh yeah yeah no i think so yeah, too. i was yeah. just kidding it was a joke and then you have to here's another piece of my soul yeah that's trash and you so quickly have to allow yourself to be disagreed with um hmm. i feel like at least it's gotten me used to the act of disagreement. Com- compare and contrast, 20-year-old Mike hearing that feedback in a writer's room compared to however old now Mike hearing that feedback. What's, what's the biggest difference? 
Uh, the, the biggest difference is, of course. Hmm. So when I was 20, I, I remember the first time I tried to co-write and I write about it in the book. But this guy, he's like, yeah, I think you're... I was so offended that he had the audacity to question my musical prowess. And he's like, hey, your lyric doesn't set up the chorus. That was all he said. That was the big uh, uh, critique. And I I fumed about it for days. Mm. And now, just yesterday, I was writing with a couple people here in this room on this piano. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, do you like this? And they go, no. I go, oh, okay. It's just like, okay, how about this? I mean, you just go, of course. Of course. Of course you don't like it. And And you realize that songwriting and and maybe and maybe conversation it's it's not meant to be like let me show you this archaeological find i found mm-hmm. but if you're on a site together and you're both d- digging in the dirt and you find a bone you're like well let's see where this goes and you're brushing away the dirt and you uncover you know this fossil and a lot of songwriters talk about that how like writing a song doesn't feel like you're making something as it as much as it feels like you're uncovering something covering and you sweep this way and then the the bones run out and you go oh oh no let, let's try this over here and you, and you oh and then it just it feels like that was always there we just didn't know it well that's really good I, i've been doing this practice for about seven years now where i have a focus group come in most thursdays before i preach i'll do a rough draft of my sermon and then the second half of the hour i'm going all right what worked, what didn't work. Tell me your experience. What did you hear? And just to hear feedback from people going, yeah, that video didn't work. Uh, yeah, that point didn't land. Um, and I mean, they're church people. So most of them are very nice about how they say it. And you know, if they're generous enough to give me an hour of their time during the work week, then typically they're generous people for the most part. But so it's not like, Hey, you're the devil or something, but it, it would have been very difficult for me at 20 to have that same practice to go, hey, this is the best I could do with that. What do you think? And they're like, yeah, that doesn't come up. But 40-year-old, 41-year-old Luke is like, okay, all right, let's figure this out. And I love the language of uncovering because I feel like in the writing process, for me at least, it's not like I'm coming up with something new, but it's like I'm like being aware and present to the muse that's like underneath this that I'm not trying to create, but I'm trying to listen to. And so I feel like that uncovering is the right, right language for it. I really like that. Yeah, it's all about discovery and how do you discover what the other person is actually trying to say unless you're leaned in and you're not defensive of your own position. Yeah. So uncovering and discovery, when you start talking about disagreement, mm-hmm. are way better words, I think, to, to come to argument with than winning, losing, defeating, yeah. debating. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you have years of experience uh, in that writer's room where you have a very vulnerable process where people speak to things that aren't just like math equations you've come up with, but these are parts of your soul that you're sharing. And so you have that experience of like a very vulnerable sort of, um, you know, not easy sort of criticism environment, but also you deal with a medium that connects to us on a very like, uh, subterranean way that music is uh, the line from the book is uh, you have a Tolstoy quote where you go music is the shorthand of emotion and then this, these are your words it cuts to the quick it has power to move the heart in the shortest amount of time and so you, you deal with something that's not just hey this is this is how you drive a car but this is this is not just like how you you know you you're you know, parallel park, but this is how we understand like ourselves and our emotions. And that has to be very helpful as you're trying to help us understand these very personal debates that we get in. Yeah. And music itself, you can't even study music fact in college. Yeah. You can only study music. music. Yeah. And I love how just disagreeably subjective music remains. Mm -hmm. You can have a classical flautist telling you why a certain composition is better than another and someone's still going to go yeah but i like it yeah but i like those simple notes that are not complicated and easy and and you're left going why is that so good i don't know but it moves me and i think that's beautiful uh just to remind us because you know some people I, i put out this question the other day 
And I had a lot of people just say, there's no such thing as gray spaces. I said, what? There's a... There's yeah. no such thing as gray spaces. It's everything's black and white. Mm-hmm. And I go, what about four thirty in the morning? <laughs> is that too late or too early? You know, I mean, what about dawn and dusk and when yeah. day ends and night begins and those even in the universe, there's built-in gray as if God's saying, "Hey, get used to this. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some mystery here. That's why my name is holy, which means you yeah. can't understand me. Yeah. You know." Yeah. And anyway. we need the artist to help us unearth that part of the human experience where, you know, some of us who are a little bit more logically based, more, you know, mathematician engineers, like there's different things. Like we, we want them to build bridges and we want y'all to speak to us about the gray space where, you know, we, we have things that we don't know how to talk about. I, I had, um, I got this group of guys that get together with every fall and we're all pastors and you know functionally it's three days of group therapy is what we do. And so I'm I'm with this group a couple maybe a month and a half ago and I'm with one of my best friends. I've known him since we were teenagers. And, you know, I, I kind of do my time. And then after I talk, it's like everyone in the room just like ask questions. And so my guy has become like Steph Curry, like where he's like, I'm just shooting from half court and it's going to go in. And so here's just like a sniper question right to your heart. And I'm just talking, hey, this happens at work and this is what's my family and I'm loving my kids. And then I finish and go, yeah, a lot to be thankful for. And he goes, hey, Luke, have you grieved the death of your mother? And I was like, okay, hold on. Uh, coming in very strong there, boss. Um, and, uh, I was like, I feel like it. And like my response was, yeah. And I said, I think that's the reason why music has meant something more to me in the past two years than before, because it unearthed part of me that I didn't know how to articulate. And in some ways, music was was and continues to be a central way that I grieve. And so you 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 deal in those spaces in ways that some of us naturally don't migrate into. And I feel like that's the, the, the blessing of a musician talking about how to do a disagreement. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, I love that. Yeah, I love how music kind of helps us in ways that maybe we weren't even aware of, like your friend asking that question. And, um, and, I, and I love that you mentioned sort of an emotional intelligence feelings check-in because I have a whole thing in the book later on in the book about how we need to better understand what we're feeling um, and unpack some of that and it will actually help us in the way that we disagree with one another yeah because a lot of people they just they have they don't they don't ask those kind of questions they don't ask how I properly grieved they just go grief bad laugh good yeah Uh, yeah. So just holding that tension. Yeah. No, I'm 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 grateful for a friend like that. And you've got a, a section in the book where you talk about um, the difference of kind of East and West thinking. And you oh, know, yeah. for those of us who like, yeah, you did. It's uh, I'm telling you like you didn't know that. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of surprised <laughs> by that. Yeah. Um, There's a lot in there, man. You know, you're, you're right. Worked, like you wrote it months ago. Like, and so you're yeah. just reminding. Me. But. Uh, Tension is something that we don't naturally do in the West. Eastern thinking is a little bit more comfortable with that. So let me read a section from from that part where you go, the tension between truths is everywhere we look. And if we can learn to embrace it, holding the tension will help us grow. We hold the tension until we stretch. We hold the tension until our lives are full of flexible grace. We hold the tension until we can hold our opinions while we hear, while hearing another. Can I say one of the things I loved about that is that part of what happens when we can hold tension is not that other people are changing, but that we're changing. Yeah. Did I pick up what you're putting down there? I, that, that is the whole concept of the book is let's just, if we're going to disagree, let's stop focusing on other people's arguments mm-hmm. and just focus on how am I coming to the table? Mm-hmm. Because... Perhaps the reason there's so much vitriol is because it's in me, mm-hmm. you know. And I think a lot of people don't allow themselves grace to explore yeah. their beliefs and their thoughts. So when someone presents another side, they're so inflexible in the way that they approach truth that they quickly snap other people's and 
I think uh, the more we kind of are able, like I said, I come into this book very limited, white, American, male, very limited perspective. So the more I can open myself up to the way other people think. Mm-hmm. Who was it? Was it Mark Twain? He said the... Um, the cure for bigotry is travel. Such a great line. I think I think he said that like that. And so I in the same way, like the cure for um you know constant upheaval in in your arguments, I I think is really studying other perspectives and like trying to see the good in them as opposed to just trying to refute them. Mm-hmm. And that Eastern perspective is really, is really helpful. Like for me, when I started doing a little bit of studying of, of just the scriptures I grew up with, but trying to read them through the original Eastern lens, gosh, it just changes these sentences that I had read since I was a child. It completely changes how I read them. And, uh, and very helpful for sure. Yeah. And so when people snap at us, sometimes it's not because of us at all. Is that what you're saying? That sometimes it's because we don't have the, the space to hear other opinions because we don't have the ability to sit in attention. And so maybe sometimes people are working out their stuff on other people and it has nothing to do with the other person, but that's just a a hypothetical. Yeah. Yeah. Hypothetical. Now let's talk about something that's, Extremely important, and that is the composition of a good smoothie. Smoothies are very important. <laughs> Everyone's got to do it. Uh, yes. From what I gather, you're a spinach, an avocado uh, kind of smoothie person, and on occasion, you've been known to also include uh, a fork in smoothie making. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> do you yeah. find yourself doing that frequently, or is it just a single occurrence that that caused that? Well, the fork was a one-time event. Okay. I no longer I no longer scoop avocado into my smoothie via fork. Yeah, I use yeah I use other methods. I can imagine my listeners, and they're very erudite. They're a learned crowd. They know that spinach. Sure, do your thing. Avocado, okay. I'm not an avocado in my smoothie kind of guy, but you know, to each their own. You know, you want your protein in there, of course, and maybe some blueberries or whatever. But um, I think we can all agree that the fork in the smoothie probably not the normative recipe for most of my listeners. Yes. So I'm making a smoothie for my daughters because it's the only way you can trick them into eating nutrients. That's very true. And uh, put a little chocolate in there, and you can hide all kinds of yep. cellular respiration behind mm-hmm. it. And my daughter comes down the stairs and startles me as I'm forking the avocado into the 500-horsepower Vitamix blender that can incinerate a soccer cleat. Yeah. And I look up, she wants to help, and I forget that I've dropped the fork in the blender, and she throws spinach in on top of it, masking, shrouding, nay, shrouding. shrouding. Yeah. The fork from view, and when we finally hit go on the blender, everywhere Armageddon ensued, yes. resulting finally after thrashing and sparks and smoking, the fork yeah. rattling around like a cobra, shooting bursting forth from the side of the Vitamix blender, punching a hole in the wall. The fork, I mean, yeah. it could have it could have killed me. Yeah, and uh, for sure, smoothie was displayed across the kitchen walls and ceiling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I use that ridiculous example in the book to talk about uh, what I call the fork of bitterness that a mm-hmm. lot of us are walking around with all the time. And we're wondering why there's so much explosion in our relationships and our arguments. And we always think the problem is out there. And you just need to add some more, add some more, do some more, do this. And not realizing, hey, the problem is... I need to inspect the inside of my container mm-hmm. and go, if I'm not removing that fork of bitterness from my heart, then it doesn't matter how many other kind of practices I learn and add, there's always going to be this underlying level of tension in the way that I uh, converse with other people. So I say, get the fork out of here. Yeah, get the fork, remove the fork. There's a... Uh Three things I want to highlight as a preacher um, from that little anecdote there. One, 
the phrase forking the avocado. That is just a great phrase. Two, there's a phrase in the written version of that story in which you referred to your daughter's behavior that you would like to minimize is the uh, Casparine. Just turn the Casparine down, which I thought that is a great one as well. And third that I would like to highlight is, again, the central insight, which all of us are supposed to glean from that parable, that most of the conflict that we deal with is our inability to actually assess the own inner life that we have that's causing the projection all around us where like the first step is always inspecting our own heart. I mean, that seems to be Jesus's teaching, right? Like you look at the plank in your eye before you start looking at the speck in other people. If you don't deal with what makes you unclean in your heart, then it doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth, what words you say. It's, it's really immaterial if you don't assess your inner life, which, yeah, I love the story. I think your commentary on the story was better than the story itself. I completely so, disagree. I really appreciate I think your part of the reason I was so adroit at commentary on that story is because I've been in that kitchen and I've yeah. seen the very utensil that was used for the story. I've probably even eaten off that fork. I mean, because there, there's a lot of humanity in that story that I have participated in. That's fantastic. Let's talk about something else from your kitchen. We're going to stick with your house, okay? Are you good with more okay. more kitchen stories? Oh yeah. You okay. might hear my, my dog's barking at somebody. Here's the thing. The dog and I go way back. We, we've, you know, bonded together. We've had a lot of time together. So I understand it. There's a connection there that happens. Okay. There is uh, a section in the book in which you talk about um, someone close to you who doesn't appreciate coffee. Uh, it doesn't take long to understand that you are a uh, coffee connoisseur um someone with a more uh unhealthy inner life would call you a coffee snob that's not me of course no forks in my heart um but you're there you're all in the coffee but you talk about someone who i appreciate that yeah who who appreciate who would who would compare your preferred coffee to that of folgers and they wouldn't appreciate what you're doing um i'm gonna tell you something until three weeks ago i didn't drink coffee so when I was at your house, I didn't drink coffee. Wow. Yeah. Didn't start until three weeks ago, 41. I also started liking pineapple on my pizza last week. So there's been a lot of change in my life. They say every seven years your taste buds change. So Well, it's been 41. Right and they, you're, you're sixth. Yeah. I mean, this is the great, uh, what is it, rummage sale that uh, Phyllis Tickle talked about with my palate. Like, it's, it's a changing of the guard that's happening. But if I would have read this two months ago... <laughs> And heard you talk about coffee, I'm like, this guy is just, get out of here. Like, I don't care. But one of the yeah. things that was happening in my heart was what you call the smug monster. Oh, where, yes. Where I'm smug and I think my opinion is right. And I don't think there's room for someone else's opinion. I think the phrase that you talk us to thinking about, you talk us into thinking about is the phrase, I could be wrong. Why is that phrase so hard for us to get to? Why is that so hard? Uh, because it, it's shocking to me, especially for people who you know, call themselves followers of Jesus that participate and practice the Christian faith. There's this really problematic little verse in Hebrews that says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Mm-hmm. Which is terribly disturbing when you consider the things necessary for faith to exist. Mm -hmm. And one of the annoying elements that must be necessary to have faith in the first place is uncertainty and doubt. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you don't have faith, you have certainty. Mm -hmm. Faith necessarily depends on an element of doubt. Mm -hmm. So, if that's the baseline to pleasing God... It seems so strange that people then think the thing that's most important is that I have 100% certainty in all things. And if faith is is necessary to please God, then that frees me up to go, oh, there's going to be all kinds of things that I'm not certain about. Mm -hmm. Because that's what faith is about. And it always always bothers me to know it. And I know you've probably felt this. If you're ever in a in a church sermon and you're hearing a guy, um, you know, carry on and on. And there's just that, there's just that veneer and that sort of snide. I call it the smug monster. Yep. I, I say it because I've had the smug monster mm-hmm. inside me where you're just not open to anything. You're just so dead certain. And it, 
Uh, yeah. So I, I, I don't feel like I've done a great job talking about this point, but, um, the, the things I just say the book of Ecclesiastes, I feel, you know, it, it was debated about whether or not to include that into the church's canon. And I feel like eventually the, the guys in charge finally just went, you know, true wisdom begins with the four magic words. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. And I feel like that's laid out in scripture for us. So, And it gives us a place to have dialogue. If, if you're smug and you have that smug monster all up in your business, then there's no ability for me to lean in. There's no ability for me to be curious. I'm going to be judgmental. I'm going to be standoffish because I'm right. You're wrong. But if we lean in and go, I could be wrong about this, we open things up to a, a whole different possibility for our interaction. What is it that the church can learn from the 12-step program that could help us? Yeah. Well, the, fir- the very first tenet, more probably than any other, is that you have to admit, I have mismanaged my life, mm-hmm. is the phraseology. And anyone who can finally assess themselves that way mm-hmm. is just going to have more grace for everyone else to go, mm-hmm. I know what it is to be wrong. I have been wrong. I often am wrong. I was wrong. Here I am. And there's this great quote, really simple quote, Donald Miller says in Scary Close. He says, grace only sticks to our imperfections. Oh, that's good. And, so good. and I love that. We, we always think the way that I am going to build community is showing everybody how awesome I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure you've experienced this. It's always in the sharing of vulnerability where we create our deepest connection. Yep. And in our shared need, you know? Yep. And, uh, and so 12 steps, man. Yeah. If the, <laughs> I've said it before, I, but my, one of my best friends, he's a therapist and he works with people struggling with addiction all the time. So he's been a part of a ton of those meetings and he just says, that's where I've felt the presence of God more acutely than anywhere in my life is when a bunch of broken people get together and they go, I need help. Yep. And then everyone else says, me too. Yep. Yancey's got a line in his book called, uh, I think it's Soul Survivors, where he, the, the section is entitled, uh, Why I Wish I Was an Alcoholic. And one of the observations he makes is, in, con- in the 12-step program, their confessions are present tense. In the church, our confessions are past tense. I confess, I, I isn't. I wrote a whole song with my buddy Micah called "All Together." That started when I said, "Why does the church have past testimony time, but not present testimony time?" Hmm. And we want to hear about how God has brought us from our struggles, but we don't want to hear from someone who God is bringing through their struggles. So good. That's so good. And and I think it's because it scares us. Like, yeah. wait, oh, so that means that means God's going to let me struggle? Mm, I don't know if I'm signing up for that. Yeah. And also, how much can I learn from a person who's struggling right now? Because I think we want people, this is a Brene Brown line about some of the gender dynamics in, uh, in America and Western culture, is that uh, we want our men on a white horse. And because if they're not on the white horse, what does that mean to me? And so I feel like that comes differently from, you know, a, a female sociologist saying that than a, a white pastor, a, a male white pastor saying that. So hear that through her voice, not mine. But if we also have people on the, on the quote unquote pedestal of being on a stage saying that I'm still going through stuff, some of the expectations that we placed upon them and the role that we want them to play in our life has to change as well. Mm. Well, and that, so one of the purposes of my book is I I say, can we, can we humanize those we've deified and subjectify those we've vilified? That's a good line. Um, Because we, we constantly want to deify and demonize. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of the way that plays out is I know certain people who, if I said a quote, they'd roll their eyes. (sighs) That's not true. Yep. Like if I said... Hey, don't ever be so clever that you forget to be kind. I go, oh, interesting. Who said that? Oh, uh, Augustine said that. Oh, I love that. Mm. Actually, Taylor Swift said that. Oh, (laughs) 
you know, and and that's a, a silly example, but when you start bringing in certain theologians who we, there's certain things they've said over here that now I discount everything they have to say, mm-hmm. as opposed to going, can I just like don't shoot the messenger? Yeah, you know, just you because. Hear, during the confessional time at church this Sunday, we're going to do, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. You know, just because Taylor Swift said that doesn't mean it can't be in our lectionary. Now, r- real talk, if you would say a quote and attach it to Mark Driscoll, I would have the same sort of repulsion that someone might have because Taylor Swift is, you know, whatever reason that they don't like her. But there is always someone that I go, that's the outcast, that's the leper, that I don't want them touching me or their work touching my life. And so, yeah, I mean, we... We vilify those people and say, I'm done with you. And I don't know if really Jesus would want us to do that. Okay. Yeah, who's, your, who's your Samaritan? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's it. Okay. Here's a quote. Instead of raging at people and biting your tongue with God, try it the other way around. Oh, yeah, yeah. How we talk to God changes how we talk to people. How can raging at God and biting our tongue at people be beneficial for how we do conflict? Yeah, that and... You know, for a lot of people I talk to, that's a provocative statement to rage at God. They go, you're not supposed to rage at God. You're not supposed to question God. You're supposed God. to rage against the machine. We know that. That's a band. Um, so, I'm a child of the 90s, bro. I, I know that one. Um, Raging I think, people. I think so many of us are way too edited when we pray. Mm-hmm. And... There's a reason Psalm 62 says, pour out your hearts before the Lord. The Lord is a refuge for us. And I think I know a lot of people who are so carefully curated, dear father, da, 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 da. And they're, it's like, I don't trust anyone who prays different than they talk. That's good. That's real. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's go, real. Why, what, what happened here? Mm-hmm. Where did you, where did, where did you just shift? And now granted, I speak differently when I'm venerating someone, but sure. still, like when there's this whole personality shift when you start talking to God, and I and I think when we do that, when we're all curated with God, um, we're still left with all this angst. Mm-hmm. And I've always found that when I just get alone with God and I just give Him all my questions and all my venting and all my rage, it, it's it's got this like rain after. Or, calm after a storm yeah. effect mm-hmm. that I'm left with like a clean space where I can approach others with. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, Mike, I, f- I feel like uh, all my listeners already realize, hey, we got to get the book. Um, it's going to be what they need. And I think we've also established that this uh, budding friendship has actually come into bloom. It's happened. And so next time you're playing Austin, you can stay yeah. on my couch. Uh, maybe my family's there. Maybe we're not. I don't know. But you can use my blender. We'll leave forks out for you and avocados. It's all there for you. Like, mi casa su casa. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's field of flowers, bro. Yeah, that's it. That's uh, it. I love it. Well, uh, Mike, thanks again for the book. And I feel like, again, I, I owe you, like... A, a great deal of gratitude for the glory I couldn't see. That song has meant a lot to me over the months, and so thank you for that. I hope this book has the same effect on my listeners as it did on me. And uh, yeah, blessings on the release. Congrats, man. My pleasure. Thanks, Luke. Thank you.